We often tell people that they ought to trust, and perhaps even that they should trust in Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to trust, and who is this Jesus in whom we are to trust? There may be a danger that too often we slip into a kind of Christian code language where we assume that everybody understands the the weight of the words that we're using and the references that we are making. Spurgeon doesn't want to make that mistake in Sermon 271, entitled Faith Illustrated. Now this week we're reading from Sermon 269 to 275, and this Sermon 271 is our featured sermon. It may not be the most smoothly structured sermon that Spurgeon has ever preached, but his intention is clear. So we'll look at that this week, and then, God willing, next week we'll go on to Sermon 278 for our featured text on grieving the Holy Spirit. So if you're reading ahead, next week, Sermon 278, but this week, this sermon on faith illustrated. Spurgeon is concerned that we come to an assured faith, that not only that we be saved, but that we know that we are saved. He urges, get Christian brothers and friends, get assurance. Do not be content with hope, get confidence. Rest not in faith, labour after the full assurance of faith. And never be content, my hearer, till you can say that you know your election, you are sure of your redemption, and you are certain of your preservation unto that day. And that day is the day that is mentioned in his text for this sermon, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. For which reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. In this sermon, preached in 1859, the 21st of August, the the preacher is holding up the Apostle Paul as an example of faith, and he wants to communicate these three things. The grand action, the grandest action of the Christian's life, that is committing our eternal interests into the hand of Christ. Then the justification of this grand act of trust, I know in whom I have trusted. And then thirdly, the most blessed effect of this confidence, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. So the first point that he makes then is this grandest action of the Christian's life. And this is where he makes his point that too often we omit the simple explanation of the essential act in salvation. He imagines someone he identifies as the anxious inquirer, somebody who's troubled about their sin and wants to know how they might be saved, visiting many of our churches and chapels month after month and yet never getting a clear idea of what he must do to be saved. He might come away with an indistinct notion that he was to believe, but what he was to believe he would not know. And that's important for us to consider, whether or not there's a kind of evangelical cant that creeps into our preaching and our witnessing, where we assume that people understand the frame of reference, the ideas and concepts that we're using, but we never press them home. It's not necessarily the the big words, the long words that we might use. Sometimes it's even the very simplest of language. I recall speaking to somebody on the street. Uh, There was a group of young people and I was trying to explain what it meant to be saved from sin. 
Now, I think there was a bit of bravado in the question, but I always remember one girl looking at me and saying, you know what? I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I don't even know what sin is. Now, theologically, we might say, yes, you do, because uh, all of us made in the image of God and falling short of his glory have a conscience that tells us when we have sinned against God. But on another level, she may have been perfectly right that she'd never actually understood the nature of this law-breaking. It's just an example of a word that we might assume makes sense to everybody, but might need actually to be explained to many. And so Spurgeon wants us to understand what this faith is, uh, and what this Christ is, who this Christ is, in whom we put our faith. And so when the apostle speaks, he commits himself into the hands of Christ, his soul with all its eternal interests, his soul with all its sins, with all its hopes and all its fears, he puts into the hands of Christ as the grandest and most precious deposit which man could ever make. So what is that, says Spurgeon? What is this act of committing oneself to Christ? And he says it must involve at least three things. First, that from that hour he renounced all dependence upon his own efforts to save himself. Secondly, that he had implicit confidence that Christ would save him now that he had trusted in him. And thirdly, uh, the apostle meant that he did make a full and free surrender of himself to Christ's to be Christ's property and servant forever. These then are some of the things that are involved in saving faith. First of all, this renunciation, this uh, turning one's back upon and putting away from you all dependence upon one's own efforts to save oneself. Now, Paul had been a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, regarding the law, a Pharisee. And Paul, as a Pharisee, was not hypocritical. He genuinely believed he was doing the right thing and he pursued it. He wasn't trying to live one way and do something else, says Spurgeon. He thought that everything he did was right. He genuinely believed that this was the way to secure approval from God. It's only when he comes face to face with the risen Christ while he's pursuing his vain life that Paul's mind is suddenly changed. Almighty grace leads him to see that he's working in a wrong direction, that his toil is lost that he cannot find a road to heaven up the steep slopes of Sinai. When he sees that, when he understands that there's nothing he can do that will uh, provide the righteousness that he needs to be accepted with God, then he comes to Jesus Christ, turning his back upon and putting away from himself all the things that previously he had counted gain to himself. Now he counts them loss for Christ. His own righteousness is put away. It is Christ's righteousness that he must have. So says Spurgeon, cease to be your own keeper. Give up the futile attempt to be your own saviour and then you will have taken the first step to heaven. Out of self is the first step. And the next, and we've already preempted it, is into Christ. That means implicit confidence that Christ would save him now that he had relinquished all trust in himself. What Spurgeon means is 
that having turned our backs upon ourselves and our own works, we believe from our hearts we are absolutely persuaded that the Christ in whom we are trusting will now save us. It's not enough to say, I'm not trusting in myself. You actually have to trust in Jesus Christ, that he is worthy of your confidence, that though you may be the chief of sinners and have nothing in yourself that can carry you to heaven, yet nevertheless, Christ is able to save you. If I must die, says such a person, I will die with my arms about your cross, for you are worthy of confidence, and on you do I rely. And so, says Spurgeon, in the strength of the Holy Ghost, the sinner must do this, turn from self, turn to Christ. There is confidence in him. He uses an illustration of uh, an old Uh, British law that you couldn't be uh, taken for a crime when you are in the the church. It was considered a sanctuary. And so the guards are pursuing the guilty man even to the church door. And just as they're about to take him, the bishop came out and holding up a crucifix cried, back, back, stain not the precincts of God's house with blood, stand back. Now, Spurgeon isn't commenting at all on the value of the bishop or the crucifix or even the the value of the law. But his point is that the guards on that occasion respected the emblem and the, the guilty sinner was able to hide himself behind the robes of the priest. And that's what happens when a guilty sinner flies to Jesus Christ. He goes to him, he hides himself behind him, and there he is entirely safe. And the third element then, a full and free surrender of himself to Christ to be his property and servant forever. It is entire self-renunciation. In giving your faith to Christ, you're giving your all to Christ. Salvation comes at being bought with a price. And if you're bought with a price and so saved, from that day forward, you will not be your own. You belong now to him. You have been set free from the tyranny of Satan and you are now under a new and gracious master, Jesus Christ. And you are his living sacrifice. Worthless in yourself, but received on account of his own merits. And so Spurgeon now tries to press this home. He wants people to understand, so he uses a couple of illustrations uh, to uh, set it, he says, in a clearer light. It's like a man who gives all his money to somebody else because he knows that thieves are going to come, and he says, I want you to look after this because you are able to keep it safe. You have a safe in a bank where my money will be secure. Or another figure, another illustration, climbing a mountain. And uh, there you go up and you, you get lost on the mountains and you cannot see the trail. And a guide appears and who says, I know this mountain like the back of my hand and I can show you how to go safely. And trusting in that man and putting your feet where he tells you, you go safe. And so it is with Christ. You are to have him as your guide. You are to lean upon him, trust him, rely entirely, simply and implicitly upon him. And says Spurgeon, remember, that's not a momentary act, but an ongoing relationship. 
Jesus only your confidence all your life through, both as you begin, as you go and at the end. This then is what it means to put your faith in Christ, to commit your soul to him. But is that valid? Can that be justified? Does it make sense to commit your soul to Jesus Christ? That brings Paul to his, uh, sorry, Spurgeon to his second point, the justification of this grand act of trust. Is it really worthwhile? And in order to prove that uh, confidence, Paul tells us in the text that he knew whom he had believed. And so Spurgeon asks, what did he know? So he's moved on now from, do you understand what faith is, to, do you know the Christ in whom you put your faith? You need, says Spurgeon, not only to have faith, but to have faith in the right person, and not just in the the name in the shallow sense of this person, Jesus, who's out there somewhere, but actually the Christ of the Scriptures. So what did Paul know? Paul knew, first of all, Christ's Godhead. He knew that he was true God, the co-equal and co-eternal Son. He knew further that Christ was the Redeemer, the man who had suffered in the garden and had died upon the cross, crying out, It is finished, at the accomplishment of his atonement. He knew that Christ had risen from the dead. By faith he saw Christ at the right hand of God. He knew that he was the all-prevailing intercessor, pleading now with his Father for all who committed themselves to his hand. He knew, says Spurgeon, his Godhead. He knew his redemption. He knew his resurrection. He knew his ascension and intercession. And I may add, Paul knew the love of Christ. He knew his immutability. He knew his faithfulness. He knew his power. He knew how Christ was according to the scriptures, according to the history that had been recorded. We may know them too, but, says Spurgeon, not only by faith, but by experience. Another illustration, it's like climbing one of our Welsh mountains. When you're at the base, you see only a little. The mountain itself appears to be one half as high as it really is. You don't see it until you really start climbing. You go up higher and higher and higher. And pretty soon, as you stand on the summit, you look to every point of the compass uh, compass, and it feels like you can see the entire country lying before you. And what had seemed reasonably insignificant as you began your upward trek, when you reach the top, you realise its magnificence. So when we first believe in Christ, we may see but little of him. The higher we climb, the more we discover of his excellencies and his beauties. And who, says Spurgeon, has ever gained the summit? Who has ever known all the fullness of the heights and depths and lengths and breadths of the love of Christ which passes knowledge? Perhaps we we need to remember this, that we don't need to know everything there is to know about Christ in order to trust him. Now, we want to know more and more about him, but we need only to know that he is worthy of our trust. And these basics, his Godhead, his redemption, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession, his love, his power, his unchangeableness, his faithfulness. If we begin to grasp these things by experience, then indeed 
we know whom we have believed and we're able to put our faith in him. For each experience of our life as we then move on is like climbing of a hill, going up and up through each trial and gaining ever greater confidence in him who saves us. So the confidence in the Christ who saves, the faith that lays hold of this redeeming God-man and the a growing understanding that comes as we rest on him in every trial and find our confidence uh, confirmed and enhanced. And now, says Spurgeon, I want to notice or take note of the Apostle's confidence. I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him. Here are the effects or the consequences of such confidence. And Spurgeon says we now need to interrogate the apostle. We need to catechize him. We need to see, can we shake this man's confidence? Does it really hold fast? And so uh, as a preacher, he basically puts the apostle alongside of himself and begins to ask these questions. Paul, you've had many trials and you're going to have many more. What if you should be subject to hunger and, and thirst? If not a mouthful of bread should pass your mouth to nourish your body? Well, says Paul, famine shall not quench my faith, for the keeping of my faith is in the hands of Christ. But what if the world should rise against you and scoff at you? What if not only there's hunger within, but there's scorn without? What if everybody else turns their back upon you? No, nope, it's not my soul in my keeping, otherwise I might turn away. It's in Christ's hand, and though all others should leave me, he will keep me. Ah, but what if you suffer, Paul, not just scoffing, but real trouble? What if you're chained to the stake and the flames should kindle and your flesh should burn? Will you hold fast to Christ when your beard is singed and your cheeks are black in the flame and the smoke? He will hold me fast. And I think I hear him, says Spurgeon, as he stops us in the midst of our catechizing and replies, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Spurgeon changes his tack. Suppose the world should tempt you in another way. Not the, the sufferings, the, uh, the lion, the, the roaring, but the, the kindness, the tenderness, the offers of good things. If a kingdom were offered you, if the pomps and pleasures of this world should be laid at your feet, so long as you deny your master, would your faith maintain its hold then? Yes, Jesus then would uphold my faith, for my soul is not in my keeping, but in his. It's fascinating here that Spurgeon's not so much asking the apostle whether or not you have enough faith for this, but he's asking whether or not in such situations the Christ in whom you have trusted will hold you up. Yes, he will keep what I have committed to him. Having put my faith in him, Christ will not abandon me. So what when you come to die? Will you not then fear and tremble? No, says the apostle, he will be with me there, for my soul shall not die. That will still be in the hand of him who is immortality and life. And what will become of you when your soul is separated from your body? Can you trust him even then in a separate state? Ah, yes, says the apostle, in the time of God's mighty thunder, when earth shall shake and heaven shall reel, I will trust him then. 
Yes, until that day, the great day of judgment. Can you trust him even to that day? Yes, says the apostle. Yes, to the very end, he will keep what I have committed to him. Quotation from a hymn. I know that safe with him remains, protected by his power, what I've committed to his hands till the decisive hour. And the final appeal, O poor sinner, come and put your soul into the hands of Jesus. Do not attempt to take care of it yourself, and then your life shall be hidden in heaven and kept there by the almighty power of God, where none can destroy it and none can rob you of it. Whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. So you see perhaps what I mean. So simple, so straightforward, not particularly polished in its, uh, in its structure, not necessarily that fine in its style, but urgent and intense. And perhaps it's worth us then asking as Christians, as witnesses to Christ, as preachers of the gospel, how how much do we assume that people understand the language that we use? Have we really understood what it is to explain faith to someone? Faith in Christ Jesus. If you have children or perhaps deal with a Sunday school and you've tried to bring those children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, one of the things you may actually find is that they really don't quite understand what faith is. What does it mean to believe? Now, to say that only the Holy Spirit can give it and only the Holy Spirit can really grant that understanding is one thing. But to say then that we should hold back from making those clear explanations is another thing altogether. How carefully do we explain, do we illustrate, as Spurgeon does here, some of what we might consider the simplest and most straightforward concepts in Christianity? It's one thing to, to bang the drum, as it were, and to say, believe in Jesus Christ. But what is this believing? And who is this Christ? And what is the consequence? What are the outcomes? What's the, the blessed result of putting my faith in him? So we may not always preach the finest sermons in the sense that they're not always these uh, beautiful and well-balanced things. It's harder than it is in some sermons of Spurgeon's to trace his outline, but he's still carried along on this sense of holy urgency. He's on a mission to make sure that not a single person in front of him leaves the building wondering how to obtain salvation, not sure what it means to close with Jesus Christ. That's a very noble goal. It's perhaps one that we easily lose sight of. And then from the other side, not so much our preaching and testifying as our hearing and receiving. Have we put our faith in this way, in this Jesus? Have we trusted in the Christ of the Scriptures, this true God-man in the wonders of his person and the glory of his work, and as we consider him, and as we go on, are we coming to that blessed assurance of faith? Not because our faith is great, but because the Christ in whom we trust is truly great. That he is able to bear the weight of our confidence. That we have become persuaded that he is able to keep what we have committed unto him until that day. 
that the Lord Jesus is eminently worthy of our confidence to save us body and soul, time and eternity from sin, death and hell. That's Spurgeon's concern. That ought to be our concern as sinners and as those who make this Christ known that like the Apostle Paul, we may truly put our trust in Jesus Christ and with faith in that Saviour, know ourselves now and always safe and secure in him. I trust that that is or will be your experience. I hope that it will go on being mine and that as we learn more and more of Jesus Christ, our confidence in him will only increase so that we, should we ever be catechized like the apostle by a Spurgeon or anybody else, should be able to say, no, Christ has all that is important and he is able to keep it until that great day. I trust that's been of some help to us. Sermon 271, Faith Illustrated. Do go and read it if you hadn't had the opportunity to do so yet. And then if you can, turn on to next week's featured sermon, Grieving the Holy Spirit, Sermon 278. Thank you for listening. This is From the Heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. I hope that today's podcast has been a blessing to your soul. If you would like to share that blessing with others, please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app, especially if you live outside the United States. It makes a genuine difference. Thanks very much for listening.